All right, as we look into um, the sermon today, we're going to go a second sermon on, on the Bible. So last, last Sunday, Patrick talked about the importance of reading scripture and also kind of the heart behind engaging in, in the word of God. And today I want to really unpack, continue to unpack that, give us some practical tools. And I hope that at the end of our time together, there'd be the sense where we could approach the Bible uh, more easily. And so in the next minute or two, if you could just kind of turn to the person around you, make sure everyone's included. But what is the most intimidating part of trying to read the Bible? Like what makes it hard to pick up the Bible sometimes? All right, so we'll, get, we'll give you two minutes and then uh, we'll continue with the message. Thanks for discussing. Um, I know I've never done this before, but... What were some of the reasons why uh, you felt, maybe sometimes you feel like the Bible is uh, intimidating to approach, and if no one raises their hand, why is it intimidating to raise your hand and speak to everyone? I don't know. We'll see if this works out. I might never do this again. Anyone? Oh, yes. Thank you. Eugene. It's too big. Anything else? That's, that's, that's really good. Maurice? Don't know where to start. Awesome. I feel that way too. Yeah, shut up. Too many words. So, um, yeah, I get that, man. Like, how many times have you picked up a 1,300-page book? Like, I don't ever do that. I feel like it's like doing a puzzle. If it's over 30 pieces, I'm pretty much done, you know? I don't want to do a 2,000-piece puzzle. I don't want to read a book over 100 pages if it doesn't have, like, you know, pictures in it. And with the Bible, I feel like it's just intimidating to know where to start and how to even pick it up. I think some of you guys feel that. Like, it's so thick, you know, do I just open it and start wherever? I feel like there's also other elements of not knowing what's exactly in there, right? I, I think when I was a, a little bit younger, I was wondering if there's, like, spells in there, if it could work as, like, an eight ball, a fortune-telling eight ball, where I'm like, who should I marry? Uh, Rebecca, is there a Rebecca in the room, <laughs> you know, and like, um, and I, I think there's, there can be some superstition wrapped in it as well, um, you know, it, the Bible can end up being kind of a good luck charm, where you just put it in your back seat when you're driving, so you don't get into a car accidents, or throw it at zombies and, and vampires, so they leave you alone, right, so the Bible has uh, it's intimidating in some ways just because of the size and where to start and how to understand it. And in other ways, it's intimidating because there's like a mysticism and a superstition around it where we, don't, we feel like maybe we don't know how to approach it. And so here are my goals today. Oh, point to the ceiling. It worked, Jesse. No, it was you. Hate this. All right, Ken, just buy me a clicker. He offered to, and then I said no. Was that me? All right, so if I stand here. I hate my life. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> it's just, anyways, um, throw a Bible at this clicker. I think that might help it. Okay, so three objectives today. I want to spend a little bit of time, and I had to cut out like a third of my slides addressing some of your questions, Eugene, so sorry you could talk to me later. But I want to demystify the Bible and be able to just kind of take a step back and understand it as 
uh, a collection of 66 books. And I think some of that will make you feel like you can read the Bible in a more like normal way, okay? Um, and just kind of understanding a little bit of the history behind the Bible. And then I want to mystify the Bible because I want the Bible to still feel, there's still aspects of the Bible that is different from reading a secular book or a history book, that there's, there is supernatural power. There is uh, inspiration from the Lord in the Bible, and it's supposed to do something in our hearts and in our lives that is in a separate category than a self-help book. And then thirdly, I hope that we can look at practical ways to approach Scripture throughout both one and two, okay? And um, I hope that at the end of this, you would be able to say, hey, I can pick up the Bible, and I have a grasp on what this looks like in terms of reading it and approaching it. And so some of this might be really basic for you guys, but I hope that um, we can apply these things into our everyday life. Next slide. So some of the, some like really basic facts about the Bible, it was written in a span of 1,600 years. So that's from Moses, the first writer. He wrote the first five books of the Bible all the way to John, the last writer, uh, 1,500 BC somewhere to about 70 or 100 AD, uh, written across three continents. There's 40 different authors of the Bible and there's 66 books. So some authors wrote multiple books. And when we think about authorship, the authorship of scripture, um, 2 Timothy talks about how all scripture is God-breathed. And so we think about the author partnering with the spirit or partnering with God in writing the scriptures. And that's why uh, the penmanship, what they wrote down, the content was perfect and without error. But at the same time, is when they were writing scripture, it wasn't like their eyes were rolled, rolled back and you know, they had no control of their arms and they're just like scribbling and then they wake up like, what did I write? It was like a part of their research. It was part of, you could hear their voice in it. There's his, their personality. So God didn't just override uh, the author. He used the author in their personality, in, their, in the way that they use language. Like Paul is extremely sophisticated, while Peter uses kind of coarse, common language. And then you have very poetic writers. And so Paul uses, uh, the Lord uses their personality, and yet he allows for them to gain divine insight into a situation. And also the writings are inspired by him. He's asking them to write something that will um, affect every generation after them. It's written in three languages, Amer Amer <laughs> um, Americ, Aramaic, I'm sorry, uh, lost all trust, uh, Hebrew and Greek. And then also it's written with one primary purpose, that there's, it's about God's glory and his redemptive plan throughout human history. Um, there's different translations of the Bible. So because it's written in Aramaic, Greek and Hebrew, um, we have to translate into English. And I think grabbing the right Bible translation is going to go a long way in your ability to read and understand scripture. It's kind of like the wand fitting in Harry Potter. And so there's the word-for-word -word translation that's more literal, that's kind of like taking Greek and going directly from Greek to English. And then there's thought-for-thought -thought translation that's kind of taking like a paragraph or a thought concept and then translating it that way. And then there's paraphrased uh, translations where they kind of 
just put it into normal language as they see fit, okay? And I think depending on maybe your desire uh, to approach scripture, different uh, ways of translation will fit you differently. But let me give you my three favorite uh, versions of the Bible. And, um, and these are the ones that we use most regularly. So the ESV is, I would say, our most academic approach to scripture. And I definitely recommend the study Bible because it allows you to have like, like when you read a book that you've never read before, um, it gives you like the outline of the book. It gives you the themes. It gives you the background, the context in which the book was written. And it allows you to kind of read the book with some of those frameworks in mind. Does that make sense? So a study Bible is really helpful. It will also pick apart a few words that might not translate well into English or that has some cultural dissonance and explain that to you. It will put down some maps uh, for you and timelines for you as well so you know where you are in history. Uh, the NIV is a, is a very popular translation that we use, and that's more thought for thought. It's a, little, it's a lot easier to read. Um, and because when you have the word for word translation, the grammar can be a little clunky. Or you could be like, oh, how come they phrase this weird? It's because they're trying to be more literal with uh, their translation. Whereas thought for thought, there's more freedom for the author to say, okay, he's trying to say this, but I'm going to reword the grammar in order for it to be more palatable. And then lastly, there's um, the paraphrasing. So if you, this is kind of the first thing you pick up. If you've never picked up a Bible before, I actually would recommend the Message Bible because it's so approachable. You open it up, it's an everyday language, it's easy to read, and you just kind of get it right away, you know? Um, so I really like uh, the message. And then lastly, Patrick and Mitchell went through the Jesus Storybook Bible. And um, it's well illustrated, and I was making fun of Patrick, you know, but he was like telling me, like, a lot of people aren't gonna, isn't going to read the Bible front to back. And the downside of not being able to read 1,500 pages in one sitting is that it's hard to understand the arc of Scripture, right? Again, if you think about Breaking Bad or other movies, there's like this large arc that unfolds as you, read, as you watch a movie series or a TV series. And the same thing happens in Scripture, but again, it's hard to digest 1,500 words and kind of pin it together. And so if you, if you feel like you don't get the Bible as a whole, I would totally recommend um, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it really allows Jesus to be kind of placed into every part of the Bible and themed through it. There's a very strong theme, an accurate theme there. I remember making fun of Patrick, and then I read a chapter uh, in the Old Testament somewhere, and I just started tearing up. I was like, man, they really know how to write this thing. But then also, animation just gets me. Toy Story, Up. I started crying. Anyways, um, next slide. And so... Um, so finding a translation that you feel like fits you well is really important. And then trying to understand like how these 66 books fit together and how to approach them. Because you would approach uh, poetry differently than historical writing, differently than a gospel narrative, okay? And so understanding that the Bible is written in different uh, literary genres is a huge help when you're reading that that book because you approach literary genres differently. So next slide. So the first 
kind of two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament books. And that's really, we're going to take our time here, by the way. That's really uh, speaking to the Jewish people, their Jewish writers. And it's unfolding the first part of God's plan when it comes to redeeming humanity. How is God taking this broken world? Uh, how is God taking sin and our separation of him and each other and nature and building a group of people who, are, who he's reconciling to himself, who he, he's reconciling to he, each other, who he's reconciling to creation. And so the first large part of um, the Old Testament is really their history. It's, a, it's how the nation of Israel came to be from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and this also includes creation. Um, the laws that govern this nation, kind of their constitution, and then, it, and then the rest of this nation unfolds, the nation of Israel. And for me, I think that it's, it's a lot of its narrative, a lot of its these stories of individuals in which God is intersecting with or larger or even broader a community or a nation in which God is intersecting with. And when you read them, sometimes the individual stories feel a little disjointed. But if you read this section of history and you see God as the main character and he's the one you're discovering, He's the one you're getting to know. He's the one you're falling in love with. Then it becomes a different read that we, become, we go from being man-focused to God-focused. And then we see his character and the way he treats people uh, in a similar rhythm and pattern that his, his character continues to overflow from one generation to another, how he keeps his promises, how he's faithful to people, how he demands people to worship him, and how he's gracious when they do. Like, it just kind of themes throughout scripture. And then you start to enter in into these different stories. And you say, hey, this part of how this person's story is unraveling seems similar to my part in my story with the Lord. And so I step into that. And sometimes I step into it in this frustrating way. But I'm like, man, God was still faithful to him. And this is how his story ends. And I can expect God to be faithful to me as well. So there's a story of Joseph. He doesn't want to sleep with uh, his boss's wife. And so his boss is the executioner and throws him into prison. And he sits there for 17 years for something he didn't do. I'd get a little mad at God for that, right? Or I would feel completely abandoned. But you see, for 17 years, Joseph doesn't forsake God and God doesn't forsake him. And God's doing some amazing work in his heart and building a really deep relationship. And then from those 17 years, God fulfills the greatest promises he has for Joseph to be a ruler in uh, Egypt. And I think about moments in my life where I'm like, why am I going through he hell? You know, why am, I, why am I getting punished for, or feeling punished for things I didn't do? And then I'm like, well... I went through this for a few months. Joseph went through this for 17 years, so there's that. And then there's God ending his story with um, this deeper sense of call. Or I think about Moses as he's leading the people. There's this deep sense where he wants to be with the Lord. And because Moses, he has to write into Scripture that he's the most humble man on the face of the earth, Right? Like, can you imagine journaling that about yourself? Like, I'm the most humble. Um, Liam writes, I'm the most cute. 
Um, and so, and he's writing this, and I'm like discovering what makes Moses a humble leader, and how can I enter into that story? And I see Moses, that his heart is he just wants to be with God. He wants to see God face to face. He wants to go where God goes. And leading people is really not his agenda. Having power is not his agenda. In fact, when God points him to lead people in a certain direction, he's like, hey, unless you go, I'm not going. Um, Don't send an angel. Don't send clouds. Just you go, and then I'll follow you. And then I asked that about my leadership. You know, is, am I pastoring because I want power, because I have gifts, or because that's where God's leading and I just happen to be where he is? And so as we see these stories unfold, we get to see glimpses in our life as well. And then in the bigger history pieces, there's these large turning points in, in human history, in, in the history of, of Israel and Um, They wrestle with some really big issues, and God kind of comes down and intervenes in these different places where it's really obvious that it's him turning human history. And the cool part about uh, this history aspect is is these people are on the ground level seeing um, what God is doing and how it's affecting their community and their country and individual lives, kind of from this like ground human perspective. But then you have the major and minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. And these are books kind of addressing these moments in history for the Israelites. And you get another perspective. You get, you get God's uh, perspective in what's going on in these moments of history. And he's speaking directly to his people. This is what I think about the situation. And it's, it's amazing to hear his heart unfold for his people in this really relational and dynamic way that you get, you get God looking down at human history and in these moments you get to see how his heart, how his thoughts, how his actions are working. You get to see the innermost part of what God is processing as he's watching, as in these specific moments of Israel's history and you get to know him and you get to know why and you get these tremendous insights into his intentions and his personality. You know, I, I think about, you know, the immigration ban or Trump getting elected or kind of all these things happening in our nation right now. And I would love to get that second perspective. You know, I would love to hear God talk about what he thinks about our nation. And, but he does that in biblical history. And again, we get to enter into specific points of that saying, hey, that's reflective of where we are. The last part of, uh, the last kind of genre, so the last kind of genre of the Old Testament are these wisdom and poetry um, section of scripture. Most of this is chronological from Genesis to Esther is chronological. And then you have these books, the major and minor prophets inserted into different parts of uh, the latter part of Israel's history. And then you have most of this written, from, written by David and Solomon placed right here in Samuel, okay? So you could kind of insert that chronologically, place it right into First and Second Samuel, the uh, second and third king of Israel. And so you kind of move from this big historical view of Israel, of what God's doing there, of his thoughts and intention of Israel. And then like, like Psalms, you, 
it, it's this microcosm. It's this kind of focusing down and this microscope into King David's prayer and worship life. And he goes through all kinds of stuff, right? He battles depression. He battles anxiety. He writes uh, poems and, and, and prayers in the middle of the battlefield, it feels like, or in his reflection of it. He writes about God and worshiping God when he's being chased down by Saul. And he writes, a, he writes prayers in the middle of his confession when he commits adultery and murder. And then there's these huge celebratory prayers as well in when he experiences God's grace in his life and forgiveness, when he experiences God giving him prosperity and allowing a lot of his dreams to come true. And Psalms becomes this like, this playbook, this, this, these individual prayers where we get to say, oh man, I'm feeling depressed. David, teach me how to pray in depression. Teach me how to pray when I feel anxious. Teach me how to pray when I feel alone. He ends one of his psalms with, darkness is my closest friend. How beautiful, <laughs> you know? I mean, he's going through real stuff. And, and, and he gives us, God gives us with, this is how you pray and worship in these different moments and seasons in your life. Watch this man. He is a man after my heart. Teach Learn how to pray like he does. Here are the words. Here are the thoughts. Here's where he empathizes with you, and here's where he turns to me. If you feel like your prayer and your worship life is dry, go to Psalms. Find a psalm that resonates with where you are and just start to, you know, one of the best ways I, I, I learned to pray is to allow God to speak first and then to speak. Isn't that nice in conversation when someone's just not talking to you the whole time about themselves? Sorry about today and every time I preach. But, um, other, but a, lot of people, a lot of people appreciate, okay, you, you speak and let me reflect on what you say. You speak and let me reflect on what you say. And I love sitting with scripture and just letting it speak um, and saying, okay, God, here's what I'm saying in response to you speaking first. Let spe scripture speak again. And here's what I'm saying in response to your word. Here's where I am. Here's where I'm falling short. Here's where I want to grow. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon's is this father speaking. Um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is his father speaking to his son, pouring out. He is the wisest man on earth. And um, he's, a, he's a king, a philosopher, a scientist. He's like um, Michelangelo on crack, right? And he's just like giving all of this wisdom to his son, saying, don't be foolish. Live this way. Don't spend 30 years chasing after this thing and regret it. Don't, spend, don't do this action and, be, and regret it for 30 years. And he's just pouring out wisdom. And my dad did, did that for me for a lot of my life. And sometimes I was annoyed. And now I have a son. I'm like, oh, man, once you understand what I'm saying, I'm just going to be giving you, like, all these things that you should, <laughs> you should do. And then uh, Song of Solomon's is a husband speaking tenderly to his wife, falling in love with her again and again. Um, Job is about suffering. And so as you, you know, the Bible... Um, Paul talks about it as a sword. 
And I imagine it that way. I feel like a good soldier would know his sword. He knows the sharpest parts of it. He knows how strong it is. He knows where it's weak. He knows the reach of it so that you could stab someone in the neck and not miss your shot. And I hope that the Bible would become this familiar weapon to you that you can wield and that you feel like, hey, I'm wrestling with this, so I'm going to go here. I'm asking questions about this, so I'm going to walk into this. My story feels like this character. Let me read him again and understand what God's doing in his life and has done and how I can interact with God, the same God in that way. In the New Testament, next slide, we have the Gospels, and man, oh, so good. I mean, we talk about being a disciple of Christ, right? And Jesus is just teaching over and over in each gospel. It's his disciples sitting with him, writing down what the master's saying. And we come across those same questions. We come across those same life lessons. And we can hear the very words of Christ, our Savior, spoken over our lives. If you don't know where to start, if this is the first time you're picking up the Bible, pick up a gospel, pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just start reading through it. We actually preached through the book of John um, when we first launched this church, and it was just phenomenal. The book of Acts is about the early church, and then Paul and other apostles start writing letters to the church and to individuals. And it's nice because they're writing to Christians, so there's not a lot of cultural uh, gaps there or maybe um, religious transitions from Judaism to Christianity. And you can just kind of receive it and hear, how are you to be a husband and a father? How is your church community, our church community, supposed to make an impact in the world around us? What is our purpose in God's redemptive story in this era of, of the faith? And then lastly, Revelations is an awesome book because it's talking about the future. It's a futurist book. And it's speaking about how the whole earth kind of wraps up. And it's awesome because, man, there's certain moments in human history, maybe now, where you're just like, I don't know who's going to win. You know, if I was sitting in World War II and, not, and Germany was taking over Europe and, and Stalin was taking over the rest of the world, I'd be like, okay, I think we lose. You know, I think communism is going to take over. I think Christianity is going to die out. And Revelation says, nope, Jesus wins. You're on the right team. Keep marching forward. Darkness doesn't prevail. Everyone worships Jesus at the end. All right, next slide. Um, when you approach scripture, we're, we're, our first uh, objective is to say, oh my gosh, I'm so out of time. It's to say, what is the author trying to say? So when he writes a book, um, he has his own thoughts. He's trying to communicate something. Him and the Lord are trying to say something to his specific audience, okay? And so we don't get to go into scripture and say, uh, I'm just gonna, this means this, I win, you know? And I, I defer to you, but my, I'll interpret it the way I want, you interpret it the way you want. That's not how you read anything, right? That's not how you read Harry Potter, where you're just like making up stuff. The author has something he's trying to say, has a story he's, writing and a meaning to that story. And so when we approach scripture, we're trying to understand what is the author trying to say? And some of the best ways to do that is just to try to read a book from front to back as quickly as possible, right? So I read First uh, and Second Timothy a few times this week because, and it's not a long book. It sounds impressive. I think First Timothy is like four pages. Second Timothy is like 10 pages, right? So I read 30 no, no, I read 28 pages this week. 
I know, so puzzles under 50. Anyways, um, and so try to read it uh, front to back, and then after you feel like you get the arc of it, then go ahead and kind of interact with it in a more detailed way. Um, what we are doing, though, in our lives is that we're saying, we're taking this original meaning, and then we're asking, how does this apply to me? How is God using this scripture to mold and shape my soul, to direct and shape my life? And I think when we talk about the mysticism of scripture, it's in uh, the application. It's in how God is using this word in order to shape me. Uh, next slide. Oh, man, next slide. Yay, okay. If you're asking how, if you want to understand more of how to approach scripture, we actually have a weekly gathering at Chrissy and, and Ken's place, and a lot of us are coming together, Alpha 1.5 on Wednesdays, and that's most of what they talk about. How do we uh, approach scripture and apply it to our lives? Um, and, and there's so much to say, and that's a, a way for you guys to be, feel like you have a good grasp on interpreting scripture. Next slide. So as we move into the application and maybe the mysticism of scripture, let me read this to you. It says, do not near, uh, merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word and does not do what it says is like a, someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so, really quickly, like the first verse, the meaning is, hey, don't just listen to the word. And it's deceptive to feel like you know scripture and, and, and that's sufficient. When we live out scripture, that's an evidence that this scripture is what we actually believe, not just something we understand. And so that's what James is exhorting his, his, um, his people in. But then the application is so different for each one of us. We are waiting for the Spirit. As I listen to this, I'm waiting for the Spirit to say, Wilson, you understand and you've listened to this part of Scripture, but you don't really believe it yet because you're not doing it. Right? There's this gap between what you know and who you are and how you're actually living. And so that's the, mystic, that's the mysticism. That's the separation between a believer who has the Holy Spirit reading scripture and someone who's just studying it academically. That God is going to take scripture and put it into our lives and transform us and allow us to become like it. There's this beautiful analogy um, here where, where he says reading scripture is like looking in a mirror. And this mirror is, is magical, if you will. When you look at the, the scripture, it's a mirror to us, but it's not only, you not only see a reflection of who you are now, the scripture allows you to see who you can be. The scripture allows you to see the most beautiful version of yourself and inspires you to live and to become different. When you look at scripture, you see a woman, a man who's able to forgive, who's able to understand Christ's forgiveness and to fully forgive someone else. You see uh, a parent who says, I'm not going to worry about anything. 
Jesus is going to take care of me. He knows the number of hairs on my head. He knows, you know, where he feeds the sparrow. He knows the grass in the fields. And he's going to take care of me as well. When we look at scripture, we see us more kind, more loving, good to the people around us. And, and what this is saying is that the Spirit does this. He, he shows us ourselves, and if we're willing to, He allows us to transform and change so that we are actualizing who we see. And it's not just a moral code lifted above us that we're working towards, but the Spirit brings it into our hearts. He convicts us, but then He holds our hand to become that person. And I think there's a supernatural, mystical part of that. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is alive and active. When you open the word, there's life in it, right? It speaks to us. There's something that happens when you read and understand scripture. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces and penetrates I just put penetrates because I thought it said pierce, but it doesn't. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's saying that the word of God isn't dead. It's not this book that's couple thousand years removed that has no relevance. Someone described it, a commentary, commentary uh, tater described it as the laws of physics, that God put something in motion and we continue to feel the effects of it as if, if, as when it first started. And the same way the scripture is alive and active, it governs our world in the, in the evil of the world and in the good of the world. In the story and arc of history, the Lord is governing that, and he reveals it to us in Scripture. And it says, everything is uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must give account. You know, we live in an age where we feel like we can create our own purpose, we could create our own moral code, we could do what we want. And I hope that that won't make sense for you if you're a Christian, if, if you're not a Christian, I, I get it. Like, I would totally ascribe to that, too. Because who is someone, like, why would someone else be able to tell you how to live? But if there's a God who loves you, if there's a God who's governing the universe and has this big plan and purpose in your life, then we have to make a decision to say, okay, there is a big truth out there. There is a moral code that transcends our society and laws that speaks about immigration, actually. There is a God who has, um, has a purpose in our life. And if he's real, and if he's really governing, I need to submit my purpose, my moral code, my ethics to him. I have a friend, he, uh, he grew up in China, and um, it's very, very competitive in China academically. I mean, kids are literally st studying from sunrise to sundown to try to get a shot at getting an education that will actually move them out of, of the rural lifestyle. And you're just like gunning it, racing 
every day against everyone around you, okay? And so my friend, he's brilliant. Um, I would love for him to come and preach one day. He keeps me in touch with uh, China's underground church. And um, he, he, he was an atheist, and he just kind of excelled. And he got into the best law school in China, which it's not like, it's like competing for Yale, but there's only one person that gets accepted a year, okay? It's like that competitive numerically and in terms of probability. He gets in. Then he works for one of the best law firms in China, in Beijing. And he, this is everything he's worked for since he was like five years old, right? And he gets there and he says, after I'm able to grab on to my purpose, my dream, I realize it just disappeared on me. And everything I built my life on felt vacant and empty. And he said, it's like I was sailing in the ocean and there's this huge, massive storm. And I feel like I'm going to get swallowed up by the waves. I have this, ink, this oar that I'm rowing as hard as I can in, but I don't know where I came from. I'm not sure where I'm supposed to go. But I just know I, I'm lost. And then someone invited him to church. And he found Jesus, and he found scripture. And he said, this is what anchors me. I feel like... Sometimes we look at this truth thing and it feels oppressive, it feels restrictive, but for someone who truly didn't know if there was anything bigger than himself, for him it was deeply anchoring. It was deeply freeing to say, I don't have to just explore all these avenues of purpose, giving 10 years here and 20 years there. I can know that there's a God who loves me so much that he's shown me himself. He's shown me that I have a purpose. He's shown me what this life is about. And I want to spend every waking moment doing that. I hope that we would hold on to scripture, that we would let it inform not only specific decisions, but who we are how we live this life, and how we interact with the Lord. What a gift that God didn't just sit back and give up on us. But again and again, he enters in and speaks and says, I love you, and I want you to go this way because that's what I made you for. He does this throughout human history, and he's doing that right now um, in this moment. I hope that we would grab a hold of that. Father, we just come to you and we're thankful that we worship a God who is not silent, but you speak perfectly through your word. In every circumstance and situation, you speak, God. You speak about who you are and who we are and what you're doing in human history and what, how we are to live. You speak into our sexuality, into every facet of life. And I pray, Lord, that we would listen. The God of the universe is speaking, and I pray simply that we would listen and that we would approach Scripture and, and delve into it and grapple with it and allow it to form who we are. That the person we see in Scripture would become the person that we are more of every day. The God we see in Scripture will be the God that we are that we start to interact with 
um, in meaningful ways like, like we see um, that we would experience the same God. Um, thank you for your word. And I would pray that this week, Lord, I just um, pray for the apprehensions we have of uh, approaching your scripture. Um, and I ask that we would fight through it. We would fight through it in our small groups as a church, and we would fight through it individually. And I ask, Lord, I bless my brothers and sisters that when they open up your word today or, and this week, even if they don't understand it perfectly, even if they feel intimidated, that you would allow your spirit to connect the words on this page to be alive and living for them. I bless each one, Lord, that when they open your word, that you would show them more of who they are. We love you. We're so grateful. And um, thank you for being here. In Jesus' name. I just want to say that if you need some help opening God's word, where to start, what something means, I'm to- that's like my job, all right? So please use me as a resource. And we hope that a big part of why we come together is to do this, to open God's word. Let's move into a time worship.